Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week I'll be talking with poet Carolyn Hembry, whose new collection is for today. I'm so happy to welcome Carolyn Hampton back to The Reading Life. She's Associate Professor of Creative Writing here at the University of New Orleans and also serves as poetry editor of Bayou Magazine. Carolyn is the author of the previous collections Skinny and Rigging a Chevy into a Time Machine and Other Ways to Escape a Plague, Thinking About Plagues Even Then. And today we're talking about her beautiful third book, For Today, from Louisiana State University Press. Carolyn Hembry. Welcome. Susan, thank you so much for having me back. I love being here. Well, it's good to welcome you because this is a book that welcomes the reader right in. I mean, it's like if ever a book of poetry threw its arm around you, this would be the one. Thank you. Thank you. That's that. Of course, you never know how anyone is going to receive the work when you're so deep inside of inside of working it. But that that would be the dream. And you worked on this book for 10 years. Yes. And one poem, one very long poem, for five. Yes, a 60-pager. So talk about that process and that kind of devotion over time and, and how it works. I think it is so different, obviously, for, for every writer. But my experience of it was on the one hand, it, it, it was sort of a the, the long poem is a, a continued elegy for my father and also a sort of celebration of this place, you know, the, yes. the Gulf South and a celebration of my child who was uh, born three months after my father died. So my father died when I was six months pregnant. So the the long poem sort of goes into that territory, but with, and I love your term, you know, sort of the arm around the reader and also the arm around the landscape of my mm-hmm. neighborhood and um, other neighborhoods near where I live. And so I think the the process started um, with me thinking I was writing a poem, as one usually does, a a normal-ish poem. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) the very end of the long poem was actually the beginning. And so it started with this sort of nocturne. There was a scene with a child and and mother uh, inside of a storm, sort of, Mm -hmm. uh, not a hurricane, but still a storm that may flood the city. And sort of inside of that, and both of them writing. And that's how it started. And then 
then, you know, at some point I kind of started to feel, uh oh, this is getting bigger. And it, I'm a very slow writer, which oh. I used to try to change um, and make myself speed up because I want to be faster. I want to be able to, I mean, there's that reward of sharing your work, the reward of publishing your work, all of the rewards. But this poem humbled me and made me sort of give up on that. So it was a very private journey. There was a lot of rewriting and revisiting it. Um, yeah. And I love that Mamie, your daughter, is kiddo in this poem. <laughs> I love that, kiddo. Now, these poems are definitely of New Orleans. And, of course, they're universal as well. And you draw from Hurricane Katrina as well as the pandemic. So I wonder if you take us back to April 2020, that poem. I'm sure yes. we all remember that year. Yes, I remember um, specifically in April and a little before March. I, I can measure a lot of things in time by this New Orleans writers group that I'm part of, this uh, outside of the academy or any kind of uh, – it's not vetted by any institution um, – that I'm in with several friends. And we uh, – I joined it just before Katrina. So – uh, it's been around like 25 years or something. And when we, uh, by the time COVID was uh, raging in April, we were no longer meeting uh, as we always did in the coffee shops. Um, we were trying to figure something out and, and talking by phone or on Zoom. And I remember the daily counts that would come out around noon mm -hmm. of like how many new infections and what was happening. Um, and so this poem was sort of born out of, like a lot of the book, what I was returning to in my reading and my walking that I was doing. So I was kind of returning to Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales and this sort of idea of, of the pilgrimage in my reading because of the, the plague times and right. sort of trying to understand through various texts and um, my neighborhood. So let's hear it. Okay. April 2020, that him hath holpen one that they were sicker, the general prologue, the Canterbury Tales. Not big on pilgrimages, yet this fever drifts from house to house. One leaky pirogue drift, empty, listing to one side on the bayou. I look inside my neighbor's yellow house, joy of a yellow house, shades up, rainbows chalked on the walkway under a palm's moving shade, palm where wild parrots roost. I play like it's mine, my neighbor's breakfast nook, the playpen, a last cold bite. A friend was topping off my glass last night when a rolling violin solo a show tune woke me. Here, prone is transitive, to roll the sick onto their stomachs so they breathe. Transitory strings receded down the avenue, above night transit, lighter now. Night birds sang, yes, we hear you again. I sang along, mask maker, mask maker, make me. Not a carnival mask on one you don't know you know until they're in you. Breathy, sobriquet, dark alcove, the quarter. No, the other kind of mask so we breathe for centuries, alone. 
Today I walk through another April shower under April canopies where my thoughts footnote old lines. One that are real. Parish pilgrims arrive on winds, on foot, by bike, by car, by bus, by streetcar. Nowhere to be, no intercessor, I join them. We roam the neutral ground weeping, scrolling news on screens that light our masks, so many magnolia petals. Our hair the wind unscrolls. You know, my husband was a medievalist. And I couldn't help but think, oh, Julian would love this poem so much. Thank you. So it made me very happy in that way. (laughs) That's wonderful. I was thrilled when um, Jessica Faust took it for the Southern Review, and it came Mm -hmm. out not too long after sort of high COVID, I guess, I I think of it. And and she was so helpful with um, the revisions to that. So I just, you know, Jessica Faust is a very, as a poetry editor, she's she's not a curator of uh-huh. the magazine. I mean, she is, but she's also in there getting her hands dirty and, and really helping with the final edits to the poem. She's so, a fierce editor. She's an incredible editor. <laughs> so. so is Ava, who um, was the series editor for the book. If you're just joining us, we're talking with poet Carolyn Hembry, whose new collection is for today. We'll be right back. is such a world that's interconnected, you know, and and you feel like you know people even if you don't. You take people to heart and carry them around with you for a while. Mm. And there are two kind of presiding spirits over this book. And one is Inger Christensen and the other is Reiner Maria Rilke. So talk a little bit about those two poets and how they inform the work here. Yes, thank you. I read them in, uh, well, I've read Rilke Uh, all my life. My dad was a German professor. And so in preparation for his classes, he would, uh, for fun, not a serious translator, but he would translate the Ceylon and the the Rilke. And I have very early memories of like him trying out uh, Death Fugue on me, his various, uh, and Julie Kane, the poet here said, that makes sense, Carolyn, that that's one of your early childhood memories. Yep. <laughs> the other is my parents arguing about the Oxford comma. But anyhow, um, so so as far as um, Rilke goes, though, it, I remember him, you know, translating, translating Rilke. And he was, you know, it, it, I don't read German, but but from talking to others, it's fairly good. And his translation of uh, uh, fall or autumn uh, is is in the back of this book. So the Rilke has has been with me and um, uh, has helped me a lot in in thinking about uh, what we might um, reach for beyond mm-hmm. this realm. The Christensen I read much later. Um, I don't know how long ago that I first encountered the text, but I started to read them sort of in tandem, interested in a lot of what Christensen, how she treats sort of eco disaster um, and how much she insists 
on, you know, there's this, they both interrogate, have an ontological um, interrogations, but with hers, it's, it's very much about the here and the yes. now. And she just will not give up on that, even the one might want when reading it as the Fibonacci sequence just expands and expands and accordions out to for her to go to another realm and get us out of there. We stay in until the, the bitter end. Um, and it's so beautifully private as a book in its reflections on the speaker's mother, in its um, reflections on the children, you know, being uh, left alone because the adults have died. It's such a beautiful, and yet it's also so big hearted and about mm -hmm. the community. So I read those two next to each other as a sort of compliment, but also complimentary, but also a little bit of an argument with each other. And there's one line that you repeat with your daughter as you're walking along from that book. Talk about that. Oh, apricot trees exist. Apricot trees exist. Yes, that's Christensen's uh, first line of her poem. And so the game in the uh, in the poem is the the mother and daughter have uh, their reading time together. There's a lot I of reading <laughs> at, at night, right? Mm -hmm. So there's sort of, that's that's ongoing. But one of the games that they play is to expand on uh, Christensen's poem. And so they're counting down the days. You know, they started with A, uh, and they're, today they're at M. And the long poem is a day-long sort of journey. It's right. one day. And so it's M, and so magnolias exist. And they're seeing, or they said magnolias exist. I'm sorry. The day is P. It's P. So they're looking for things that begin with P, and that's what resonates. It's very Joycean that day. You know, mm. it's jam-packed yes. with stuff. And I can just imagine how long it took you to cram all that in there yes. in, in the appropriate, beautiful ways. I mean, you Thank know. you. It, it did. And I think the, I am a little, this is the like one kind of thing you say that's like, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but you go ahead and say it. That when I was looking at like Joyce's um, type uh, his galleys, they, mm -hmm. they float around the internet every once in a while, yep. Joyce's galleys for people to make fun of um, and be like, oh, my God, what a pain he was for his typesetter and how awful. And I just thought, oh, my God, um, I hopefully Neil Novak, will, uh, who's an editor at LSU and Ava won't <laughs> won't pipe up um, because to me, his his edits, um, I mean, at that point in the process, looked totally recognizable. Well, he was the despair of his publisher, Sylvia Beach. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> now, one of the things I noticed in this book that is just so dazzling is that you showcase a variety of forms, haiku, the villanelle, the sonic crown. And I know you set about, you set yourself a task during the pandemic of perfecting your formal knowledge. So talk a little bit about coming up with that idea and the process and what it did for you, that seems to me to be better than, I don't know, is it better than baking sourdough bread? Maybe. I don't know. You <laughs> might have to ask Brad Richard because he, he perfected sourdough bread and wrote gorgeous poems during the, the pandemic. So uh, you can maybe you can do both. I actually took that time to learn about, though not practice so much, some forms that were outside of the sort of Western forms mm -hmm. um, so that I could sort of expand my knowledge. 
and writing this book, certainly going back to like 2014, I mean, I was in my MFA program, you know, there was the usual forms class, like here's your semester, have a, you know, here's some sonnets, write a one, have a nice day. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I teach craft, I think a lot of it's been through teaching craft and, and reading more deeply that way. And with the sonnet crown, which is in blank verse, I did um, listen a lot to work in blank verse and read a lot in blank verse. That was probably the most challenging was to get that rhythm. Marilyn Hacker was really helpful mm-hmm. um, and Milton. Ah, interesting. Yeah. What a lot of reading you must have done in two years. I mean, <laughs> just to do all that. If you're just joining us, we're talking with poet Carolyn Hembry, whose new collection is for today. Now, you are one of the best poets we have at performing your work. You just are. And how did you how did you develop that skill? Because we think of we often think of poets as so intense and isolated and concentrating on their work word by word. But after the poem's written, the poet has to step on stage somehow. And you always do that so beautifully. You look like you're having a great time. So talk about balancing those two aspects of poetic life. Thank you for that for that compliment. I, that means a tremendous amount about my reading. I don't think I am very good at balancing those. I rather kind of go through um, cycles where I am out and I'm reading and I'm in one of those spaces right now where I am reading to people, listening to the audience. I'm always attending readings, but at this point I'm actually doing my own readings and I'm preparing for that. And then there's time where I am more interior and I'm working on my poetry. I'm dwelling in my home a lot and interacting with my neighbors and immediate friends, but I don't do many readings in those periods because I need to be I need a kind of privacy mm-hmm. and hiddenness that uh, reading doesn't allow because I do try to be fairly open with the space that I'm in and the people that are there and in tune with like, OK, this person's, you know, coming in and doing this and I can kind of see them and acknowledge them, things like that. But I, as far as reading as a skill, it's been learned. My husband's an amazing reader. And so um, I've practiced a lot with him in the past. And I think, you know, you also it's just trial by fire. If you're if you if you have a book and you're a poet, it's time to read. You know what <laughs> you I mean? better read. Even if you hate it. And I tell my poor students, you know, I'm teaching an undergrad intro class and, you know, there are some of them just despise reading. And it's like I'm trying to just just a little inching out to just reading in front of the class one poem. That's that's it. And then. It, you know, as, as time goes on, you become a little bit less. Well, so many people think the poem's not complete until it's read, mm. you know, mm. aloud. Well, I always read aloud as I write, of course. Yeah. I read poetry aloud to my dog. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's better. You can just feel, you know, I'm not sure I'm a very good reader, but the dog is very well read. Yeah, and so. you feel it when you put it in the air. I mean, you, it, it's very different. Yes. I'm often glad no one can see me. <laughs> Now, do you think 
Given your background, do you think you had any choice but to become a poet? No, I don't. I mean, I think that I tried to do something really a lot more, you know, sort of realistic and grounded to be an actor um, <laughs> in New York. So I gave that a shot. There you go. <laughs> while I was still writing poetry. But poetry was what always I felt... Well, it's just like anything. It's It was like moving to New Orleans or it's like being on a yoga mat to me. I, I felt at home. I knew I was home when, when I wrote poetry. I mean, I told stories to my dad from the time I was little and couldn't write and he would dictate, you know, he would write them down. I would dictate them. But even but once I got into, I guess, ninth grade is when I started really writing poetry and immediately like the teacher I was at this very strict religious school, um, but it, it didn't approve of anything. But she saw that I needed this maybe. It's not that I was that much more talented than anyone else, but I needed it. Mm -hmm. And that teacher, Mrs. Bola, she pulled me aside and took my poems and gave them to her friend who was a published writer, published poet, who gave me notes back. So she... What a gift. Just Yes. And it was just in a regular like poetry unit in an English class. And so from there, it was just like every step of the way has... I have been... Another door's been opened for me. Another door's been opened. It's been... Whereas say with acting it was like I was you know it was a vault mm -hmm. this has been just one open door after the other so I've been very lucky I've also worked really really hard oh yeah so tell us where where do you think this book has taken you on your journey moved you along the path I mean I would think if you work five years on a poem that is as long as for today is as epic as for today is that you've You've got to feel something shift, you know, in in yourself, within yourself. Is that true? I mean, yeah, I'm 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 pretty terrified at this point. I uh, as a as a creator, as an artist. I mean, I I I've never really taken much of an extended break um, from writing. And after I finished that poem, I did take a break. I chose not to write uh, for a while. I felt that I needed to listen and wait. And so I did that for quite some time. And then I was like, well, okay. So I sat back down. And now I'm in the muck and the mire and the complete, like, I have no idea what I'm doing at all. No idea where I'm going or what's happening. And so nothing's getting produced, but I'm sitting down every day and doing the practice. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the part of the practice that I really don't like. I love revision. It's my favorite part of the process. I, I can tell. <laughs> despise this part where I am alone and I I can't I, I have no idea what I'm doing. But I also know from watching others that that cognitive disson dissonance is crucial to mm -hmm. the creative process that I have to go through this just like everybody else does. Well, I did see a video of you opening the box of books when they arrived. <laughs> so that was a pretty good day. That was a pretty good day. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I mean, I, I, as far as the the book, I mean, I just, I mean, the first time, um, yeah, I got alone with it. I, I mean, I was, I, I actually wept and I'm not much of a crier. And it really, uh, to, to see it uh, here um, and, and even, and I also 
cried when Ava Level Heyman, who's the series editor, mm-hmm. accepted the book. Um, it was very quickly after I'd finished it. And um, she just immediately understood it and immediately zeroed in on why she was taking it and what section spoke to her, what poems spoke to her. Her help with also revising it, the manuscript to become the book, mm-hmm. was unlike any I've I've had, except for maybe Jane Miller back when I was in graduate school. It was the kind of like somebody with this huge mind who's able to point out one instance of a problem that applies to all of it, the entire book. And then your job will be to go find where that occurs at all the other places in the book. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it was was a wonderful journey. Well, everyone should spend a day with For Today. It's just, (laughs) it's richly rewarding in so many ways. We've been talking with Carolyn Hembry, whose new collection is for today. You can meet her Friday, February 16th at 7 at Zeitgeist Theater. Blue Cypress will provide the books. Carolyn, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Susan. what's on tap in the literary life this week. Musician and author Valerie Sassafras celebrates the release of her memoir, Horny, Lazy, and Ready to Spill, Stories from the Sass Queen, Friday, February 9th at noon at Blue Cypress Books. The event will include a musical performance followed by a book signing. Carolyn Hembry reads from and signs her new collection for today, appearing with Sky Jackson and Michael Todd Edgerton. Friday, February 16th at 7 at the Zeitgeist Theater. Books provided by Blue Cypress. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at wwno.org. And you can email us at the reading life at wwno.org.